I just love the fact that, uh, as, uh, well, first I just say, what a gift to have our Chinese students. And I honestly think someday when we look back in history and we see the significant impact of this church, it may be how God has just used. So many have gone back and touched hundreds and thousands of people back in China. A lot of times we don't see how God's working. But one thing I think is really kind of interesting is in in Forest Dream, as she's kind of studying and learning more about Jesus, Jesus shows up in this dream with the song that we sing at Children of Light, Wake Up, Children of Light. I love that. It's kind of like in the dream, God's saying to her, Wake up. You are a child of mine, a child of light. And, and then we see how God used people around her to bring her to faith in Christ. What I find interesting in Forrest's story, and one of the reasons I wanted to share that story with you, is because it kind of sets up well what I think is true with the Word of God, and especially when you begin the study in Esther, and this whole idea that we will look at life and, and we'll see coincidences, and then at some point you might go, wow, that was the providential work of God. He had his hand in my life, and I wasn't even aware of it. Here's a concern that she has of a friend riding with a stranger. And as a result of that, she sees God working in her life, bringing her to him. I'm going to read to us Isaiah 47, verses 10 through 11. I'm going to ask you to stand, would you, because we're going to read this together. There is a sense that underlying all of this book is this truth. And so let's read this. My purpose will stand, and I will do as I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you and we recognize that we have many plans, but purpose that brings about um, the changes and brings about what you have always desired and planned. And so, God, we're asking that you would teach us more about this in, in this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Your Holy Spirit come with power in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. Is this still cutting out again? Okay. Hi. Second. We'll get it yet. There's a question as we come into this new study. We're going to look at the book of Esther. We're going to actually read through it. And so kind of comment on it. And this might be a little different approach than what we've done sometimes. I've done this once in a while when we did um, back in Christmas. This is almost like story time in some ways. Uh, but we begin this series of Esther. It's in the Old Testament. And the question behind it, all throughout it, is where is God? That's a central thought in the hearts and the minds of the people living in Babylon, living specifically in a city called Susha. And to understand why they had this question, you need to know a little bit about the background. These are a group of people who at one time had been in Israel, who as a result of their sin, the consequence of their sins, God said way earlier in advance that if if you do this, at some point you will lose your land, your temple will be destroyed, and you will be deported. And they were deported about 900 miles away. The journey would take four months. If you went straight across, it could be a lot faster, but you can't because of the desert and everything else. So you have to kind of go from Jerusalem up and around down to Babylon and Asusha is. And here they were living far from their home. 
And in that day, it was very common, as we all have certain kind of beliefs that um, our culture has, well, in that day, throughout the world, the culture pretty much believed that God resided in a region and in a place. In fact, he was a God over a city. And as that city became stronger, it was, it was because that God was becoming stronger. And so that was the prevailing view. And, and, and Moses was going totally against the grain of the culture, as he began to say, there's one God. Now, there isn't other gods. These other gods that are being worshipped, they're really evil spirits. They're not really God. So just worship God who is the God of the entire universe. But they're in this culture. Their, their God has somehow, and they've been told this by the Babylonians, they're told this by the Persians and the Medes, and they're told by the Assyrians prior even before that, that their God was stronger, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persian media God. And, and, and so... Here they are, away from their temple. It's destroyed, and I'm sure they are wondering, where is our God, this God who is the God of the universe? And here we are far away, living under the power of this God. And so that's kind of what's going on, 900 miles away. The question would ring in their head, where is God? As persecution began to grow, which it began to grow in that time uh, among the Jewish people in that day and in that age, uh, it was happening not only in Jerusalem but in the land of Babylon. As persecution grew, they also had growing in their head the same question, where are you, God? Why am I suffering? God seems so far away. He seemed distant. He seemed unconcerned with their situation. They were wondering, why can't he protect us? And they were asking this question. Where's God? Where's God in this messed up world that we're living in? Now, I don't know, but maybe some of you can relate. I'm guessing there are a few people out there who can relate to those kind of thoughts. And you have maybe yourself thought this at one point. And if you're not thinking that, there are people around you that you work with in your neighborhood, that you socialize with, who might have that question. They might even ask it or they might have it buried within. Ever felt like God was distant? Ever prayed and said, God, you just don't seem to listen? You've wondered whether God is really concerned about your own particular situation? And your question is a continuous God really out there? Does he really care? And you wonder why God just won't reveal himself more clearly. Well, the story of Esther is your story. Because where you are at, so is Esther. And so is her cousin, protector Mordecai, and the people of Israel. And so what I want us to do is to understand that that this question, where is God, is answered in this story, not by some verse of scripture, not by some systematic, logical presentation of explaining where God is. It is told to us through a very creative, imaginative, and, and very relatable story. And I love that about it. My challenge for you is to, I would ask you, would you read this story this week? Take the, the, the book of Esther 
and read through all the chapters. It's not super long. It'll take a little bit of time. But what I'm going to ask you to do, the challenge is this. I want you to take a pen or a pencil, and it's okay. I'm going to give you permission to write in your Bible. I've seen some of your Bibles, and they're so marked up. But I want you to go through, and every time you see an event or you see something, a a verse of Scripture, that as you look at it, it, it appears to be a coincidence. You go, wow, that's a coincidence. Just put a little mark by it. I I challenge you to do that. And then I'm going to challenge you to do something else. Again, using your pen or a pencil. And I want you to go through, as you read through the book of Esther, what I want you to do is every time you come across the word God or the name of God, I want you to underline it. Okay? Just, just Just go ahead and underline it. Now, let's get in a little secret that you need to know, and some of you have studied Bibles, so you're looking at it right now and realize this. If you find the word God or a name of God mentioned anywhere in this book of Esther, you're reading the wrong book. There is no mention of the name of God. There's no mention of worship or faith in God. There's no prediction of the coming Messiah. There's no mention of heaven or hell. There's just no mention of God at all. And some, some through, even before the time of Christ, Jewish believers who, who were um, very much a part of the Jewish faith in the Old Testament, they, they looked at that book and they said, this shouldn't even be a, a part of the canon of the Old Testament of Scripture. And then you had guys like Luther and Calvin and a bunch of others who said, how in the world did this book get in the Bible? But I have to share with you, this is probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. I just love reading through it because as you read through it, and if you do that little exercise where you put a little check or mark next to every coincidence, you will go through there. And as you read it, you will not see God named, but everywhere you look, you will see the hand of God behind the scenes at work. There's a New Testament verse that people love to quote that kind of explains this, that that illustrates this very entire book. The the question that Esther and the people of Israel are thinking, where's God? This verse, Romans 8, 28, it's a life verse for some, answers it and says, here's God. He's working in all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. That is another verse that stands behind everything that happens in this, in this book. God and his name is intentionally left out by the author in order to highlight, to teach us in a very important lesson. When you're wondering where God is, know this from the story of Esther, that God's at work. Here's what's interesting, is, is, is he leaves out intentionally the name he, in a sense, puts the characters in the stage. As you read through it, you'll, you'll see that the readers, as they go through it, the characters of the play, have no idea. They're questioning. They're wondering, where's God? They can't see God. But as a, as a person who reads it from the outside, from an objective stance, you look at it and you can go, oh, there's God, there's God, there's God. There's a sense that we are all, in a sense, actors of our own little drama. And we go through scene after scene. And at some points we see God very active. And then there's times in our life when you go, wow, where in the world is God? Sometimes you don't see the hand of God till after the fact. Sometimes you don't see the hand of God till you kind of step back and take an objective look. And what the author of this book is doing is, is creating this kind of picture of the fact that God is the director, the producer, who's behind the scenes 
And the actors are acting it out, and he is everywhere working and moving in the king's heart, in the people's hearts, and moving in a way to accomplish his purpose for the people of Israel, for Esther, for Mordecai. And in the very same thing, I just want to say to you, if you're in that place, or you have someone near you, one of your, one of your opportunities is to just share with them that although you may not see God, you may not even see him now, God's at work. He's overseeing you. He knows your situation. In fact, one of the favorite lines I have at times when I've gone through these periods or stretches where I don't see God and I'm not seeing, you know, I'm praying. You ever prayed for an answer to prayer? Passionately? Tears coming down your face? I know those times, and when I've done that, there's been a little phrase that I just kind of, in the back of my heart, will just say, God's at work. Part of living your life is living into this truth right now. It's helping maybe someone else live into this truth or to pray for them as they begin to discover this truth. And that is to live into it with all faith, knowing no matter what, that as you continue to be faithful, as you continue to kind of push in, as you continue to lean into the very God and this relationship he's called you to have, God is at work. So that's kind of the beginning. And I wanted to kind of set that up because you, you really need to have an understanding of, of what this book is all about. Now, um, what I think is interesting is as I um, finished yesterday, you know what, last Sunday when we had um, Gordy here and he shared his story, how many had a chance to be there for that? Okay, good. There's a number of you. So uh, you remember one point I actually said to Gordy, this is kind of an aside, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, yeah. I kind of said, you know, Gordy, um, I was wearing what I was wearing. I said, I, I got this on sale this week at the foursome where Gordy owns it, you remember? And I kind of made a little joke. And then I said, you know, but I, next week I'll go back for the socks and get them because, you know, they'll be on sale. On Tuesday, I got in the mail <laughs> some socks. I immediately called Gordy and I, I said, you know, if I would have not been wearing a sport coat and made a mention of that... But I did. I, I called Gordy, and I didn't say that. But I did. I, I called Gordy, and I just said, you know, Gordy, I just thank you so much for what you have done for our congregation and for so many people's lives. But I had an elder afterwards kind of come up to me and kind of pull me aside and, and just was rather passionate and, and said, I hope as you go through Esther and this question, where's God, that you will deal with this question that I know many are asking, and it is why. Right? How... How do we live in this messed up world? And where is God at times when things seem so a mess? And chapter one, as we kind of go through this, answers that question. How did this world get so messed up? What's, what's, what's going on in this world? The entire book asks the question, where's God in this messed up world? But chapter one actually says, here's how the world got messed up. And the author, again, uses a story. He doesn't, it's not, again, propositional truth. He just kind of goes through a story. So you have to kind of pick it out and kind of understand it and tease out the message behind it. So that's what we'll do. And it begins with the story of this little king who thought he was a really big deal. Thinking there's a little God who would do whatever he wanted to do, not knowing that this, good, this God that is the God of the Jews of the universe is really a big deal. And so you kind of have this picture of this little king who thinks he's pretty big. And, and it, it forces you to ask this question, what messes up this world? 
And as we go through it, you'll see a very simple thing. Pride. Sinful pride. The need to find our sense of value and worth, to find our life in anything but God and his love for us. There is a, 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 an author named G.K. Chesterton who was a Christian thinker and author, writer, who uh, was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, very well known in, in England in that area. Some of you may have read his books. At one point, a journalist came up to him and said to G.K. Chesterton, a very godly man, what's wrong with the world, was his question. And Chesterton looked back at him and said, me. I love that answer. Because we kind of live in an age right now, really, seriously, when you think about it, when you can see left extremists, right extremists, any kind of person of any kind of cause, and there's this sense of them. If they would just do this, then things would be better. We do this not only in a macrocosm kind of way, we do it in a microcosm kind of way. If, if you, do you say to your spouse, would just get better, then we'd all be better. Or if you kids would just behave, life would be good. And what this story tells us is that's a lie. Things might be a little better and a little nicer, but the reality is there's pride in us. And it is pride that messes up our world. So you could actually name this first chapter Power, Pride, and Stupidity. This first chapter is all about a guy who has it all and yet wants more. Who has it all and yet still needs to impress other people. Who has it all and is yet still insecure. Moved more by his fear than an understanding and a confidence that there's a God who loves him. So verses 1 through 4. In Esther, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials and the military leaders of Persia and Media. And the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for a full 180 days. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. Seems a little bit harmless in one sense until you begin to read into it. What you have to understand is that there was a nation called Babylon that ruled just prior to that. And then just about 46 years later, where this time we're talking about right now, Persia became the ruling power. And there's a guy named Cyrus who is Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus was known even in the Old Testament by, uh, uh, he let the people return back to Jerusalem. And they could go back and build the city and build the temple. So a guy named Zerubbabel took a first wave of Jews back under Cyrus. Not all of them returned, and we don't know all the reasons why, but not all the Jews returned. But a group of them did, and when they got there, they began to start building. As they began to start building, they came under persecution. It was a persecution that for the next 60 years, not only was there in Jerusalem, but it actually was in parts of the other parts of the kingdom in Babylon, all the way back to Susha. What you have is about a 60-year period, and then eventually... There's another wave of Jews under a guy named Ezra and Nehemiah who come back and they go to the city and they actually build the city walls and they build the temple. But in that 60-year period is the period that this book of Esther seems to be written. And it's under this guy named Xerxes. 
And Xerxes is an interesting fellow. Xerxes is really his name. You'll see some at Ahasuerus. You'll maybe have some in your versions. or That's like the title king or Caesar or, or president. It'd be like President Trump. It would be Ahasuerus Xerxes. Xerxes is kind of his name. And so we'll, we'll, we'll call this guy Xerxes. That's who he is. He has a winter residence in Susa. So when, it's, when he wants to go to a nice place, a nice climate, he go to Susa. In fact, he, he said that he loved that city. And he often ruled from there. And so he brings 127 of these leaders and rulers together. Xerxes rules for about 21 years, but it was about a third year in his reign that he wanted to avenge his father's loss of a battle that took place way over in a land called Greece. And and it was the battle of Marathon against the citizens of Athens. And he brings together these 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. Here's what this would look like. From India all the way to North Africa is where he reigned. He was hoping to go into Greece. He was going in there to avenge and find revenge, but to strengthen his territory. And so he gave a banquet. You say, why would he give a banquet for 180 days? Because he brought in the 127 provinces that had a bunch of different leaders over these provinces. And they actually had this banquet feast, a celebration, and it was a two-part thing. It was a pep rally to get them excited about the fact that he had the finances and ability with them with him. He wouldn't do it without them, but with together, if they would come together, this little 180-day feast was to get them to, to begin to start to plan. And it says, Herodotus says it took four years to plan to have eventually that battle take place. So, Herodotus tells us that he came with about one to two million men. In fact, he actually says five million, but other historians around time said it was more closer to one to two million people. And, and so as he has this pep rally, this 180-day thing, 80-day rally, underlying all this, you see the incredible pride. And if you can tell and know the story that happens with this battle, you begin to see how our world gets messed up. Stupid pride is what hurts others and hurts us. Now, I had in my notes a whole bunch of times the word stupid pride, and then Shelly said to me, you know, there's going to be kids there, and parents don't want their kids saying stupid. So kids, I just want to say, you don't call a person stupid. You get that? But you can sometimes do stupid things. But this might be good conversation with your parents in the car. I just thought we could kind of raise this. Because I want to tell you, pride is stupid. That's a, that's a good adjective. Causes to do things that are really not smart. Of the estimated 2 million men that went to war, do you know only 5,000 of them came back? Most of Xerxes' men died at the sea battle of Salamis. The Greeks had about 371 small ships compared to the 1,200 Persian war vessels. Xerxes went to battle... He watched the battle from the shore, sitting in his golden throne. Day after day, he watched as his entire fleet was decimated by these 370 ships. Too proud to quit. Sending ship after ship loaded with men to their graves. He finally leaves with 5,000, goes back. 
and left as General Mardonis, it says in history, with 250,000 men with the goal of holding that little land that they had in Greece, and they ended up not being able to hold that either. Wanting more land, wanting revenge, wanting to impress his sinful choices made a mess of a whole group of people's lives. These were just not men who sailed. These were men who had families. Because he wanted more, because he just wanted, his pride was just saying, i got to impress you, I want more land, I'm going to use this to revenge. Any of those kind of things where our pride steps out. Now, now you kind of go, well, yeah, yeah, what a, what a silly guy he was. Okay, we didn't use the word stupid, see? Um, but where do we do the same thing? And where does our pride get us into problems? As we, we chase after, we want more, and we, we don't listen to God. We, we don't realize there's a God who loves us and cares for us and, and, and wants us to know the fullness of his presence. And he will lead us to go into places where he is going to advance what we're about. But there are times when our own pride just pushes us to the point where you can hear story after story of people do their pride because of their work, and, and they sold themselves for their work. They find out their family is just a mess. They're, you name it. Pride hurts others. And how does this world get into a mess? You know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about a very real thing. I went this um, week to pray with the elders uh, to pray for Kay Carlson, who was in an accident, and we were praying for healing. The elders will do that and say, God, would you pour out your anointing and bring healing on a person? I ask you to pray for Kay as she is going to be seeing some doctors. But we we went there, and, and one of her messages was the reason she was hurt like this was because she was in an accident because someone was distracted in texting. And, and she just said to us, you guys don't text. I've got to tell you, I'm guilty of that. I've done that. And what's that all about? I mean, God has just been saying so clearly, I think to us as a culture, saying to us as a people, I'm just giving you this as a little example. What, what's that all about? It's basically thinking that you can drive a car 40, 50, whatever miles an hour, look at a phone, and concentrate on driving. That's what I call stupid pride. And I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about places in our life where we kind of think we have the ability to handle it and we can do it and we end up hurting others in those situations. Now, I just call out to our church and you can hold me accountable. At least in that area, let's just not do that. Let's make a commitment to say we're not going to hurt others. But where else in your life? The story continues. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in an enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. This second banquet is different than the 180-day prep rally. This was a seven-day feast for the people of Susa. It may have been what I would call a thank-you toast to the city for how, you know, like if you had the Super Bowl and also we get done with that and we did a really good job, remember, and says, let's toast all the people who worked to make this possible in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And then he goes, the garden had hanging, hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords, white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, I'm not even sure, marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones, which when I read this, I go, uh, we, anybody seen Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous? 
This makes that show like lifestyles of the wannabes and hope so's. Um, Wine was served in goblets of gold, and each different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. And by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. What you need to understand is that people would drink as the king drunk. And and so if the king was going to stay sober, you stayed sober. If the king was going to get drunk, it was okay to get drunk. But here's really what he commands. He commands people, do as little you want tonight. Drink as little as you want or as much as you want. You don't have to follow me. And then it says in verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So on this other end of the palace, here is a, a, a huge party going on for the women in the royal palace. Now, side note, just so you know, Persian kings believed in monogamy. So there was one queen, but that was only in theory because he had huge, large harems. Okay? And they were known for not being faithful. On the seventh day, when the king Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biththa, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. I should get a round of applause for that. Um, <laughs> to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and then the king became furious and burned with anger. And what you'll notice you go through here, the king had fits of rage. When he didn't get his way, he would become rageful. So on the seventh day, the king, it says, is in high, is in high spirits from wine, says the NIV. The KGV, the King James says, he was merry with wine. Uh, my Meyer paraphrase is that he was wasted. Plastered, tanked, three sheets to the wind, any of those will work. Eunuchs are in charge of the harem for obvious reasons, and if you're not aware, eunuchs are castrated males, so they were safe. Xerxes ordered seven of these eunuchs to get his wife, Queen Vashti, in order to show her off, but she refuses. We're not told why. A lot of different theories. But it wasn't probably out of contempt, but it was out of respect for the laws of that day. There could have been a number of reasons, but she was actually holding up an appropriate boundary. Because it was considered, this is quotes from from history, it was considered shameful to even show her face to the masses. And so she had been put between a rock and a hard place, and she acted with integrity, hoping that when he was sober, he would kind of come to his senses. Well, he's so ticked off that he goes into his fits of rage and, 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 and he brings in those wise people to make some, some suggestions. Now, well, here's, here's something that I should point out um, about this book, and that is that the book of Esther is filled with humor. And, and we don't see it because we don't read it with the eyes from that, from that day and also from Jewish eyes. But this is kind of a funny thing that's going on right now. He has just had 127 people, uh, provinces in, all these leaders, and he's really feeling good about the fact that they're all on board, they're all excited, they're going to do what he had hoped and what he said, and here is his wife who comes in and she doesn't do what he says. That's kind of the, it's kind of like, whoa... And there's a couple contrasts here. First is, is this. Here's this king. God does not respect us. He never humiliates us. He respects us out of our... Uh, he actually respects our free will and he treats us with dignity. And as great and powerful as God is in the way he is able to get his way, make his purposes, stands, he can do it all with regard to our free will. And he does it. And he allows our free will its course. 
Sometimes he allows our stupid pride to allow for us to experience consequences because he doesn't step in and force you to do necessarily what he wants you to do. And he doesn't get big and angry. He just said, this is the way the world's going to work. And if you live apart from me and you live without my counsel and wisdom, you will experience all the things that happen with a person who is living apart from God. And unlike the king who tries to act big, here's the other little contrast here. God really is big. The author wants you to see he can accomplish his purposes whether we obey him or not. The author wants you to see who really is the king in control of your life. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so verse 13, Since it was customary for the king to consult the experts in the matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, Media, who had special access to the king, were the highest in the kingdom. Again, the writer contrasts these supposedly wise men who come with very foolish thoughts. Xerxes is so filled with himself, and in stupid pride, he makes matters worse. He increases the mess when he could have easily catched us. He could have diffused the situation by merely walking into the room where Vashti was and saying, Vashti, let's talk. Let's, what's going on? He could have easily made something which could have been a personal thing. And here's his stupid pride. He, instead of just humbling himself and saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, he just continues to make it worse. And I just ask myself, because I can look at my own life and how my own pride messes up my life and the lives of others. A while back, I gave an illustration of, um, it was a simple illustration where Grace and I got into this marriage thing. We've been learning about how to listen and understand and, and, and be connected to one another. And anybody remember the story? And we went to a restaurant. Okay. Um, no one remember. And we went to this. Oh, a few people do. Well, just listen to it on that tape. I won't tell it. Okay. No. And we went to this thing and, and, and ends up. So she comes in. She's all excited. I'm supposed to, I would been all the stuff that was going on was I, I should have been so connected and, and, and she comes in excited and my response to her is I think I'm going to have the chicken sandwich that's kind of what, how that went well I shared that and I had a number of people come up and say just thank you for sharing that because I do things like that you know what I almost didn't share that out of pride and it amazed me how many people that helped It amazes me how our pride gets in the way of helping people. It amazes me how our lack of just admitting we're wrong and seeking understanding creates and continues to create pain in relationships. And I say that asking you to think for a second. You may not be too far off than this this person Xerxes who instead of just listening his heart and listening in the sense of what it would mean to just say, hey, look, at, let's talk. I need to say I'm sorry. I asked you to do something that I knew would have put you beneath your dignity. Do you need to ask someone to forgive you? 
stupid pride not only hurts us, but it messes up our relationships. I'm going to go through the rest of this really quickly. It says in verse 15, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? And he asked, she has not obeyed the command the king Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. And then Menuchan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles. And many think that these seven nobles were not on good terms with, with Queen Vashti. So this was kind of like their opportunity to get rid of her. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of the king of Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to disrespect and discord. That's, really? Um, He speaks up, and instead of dousing the fit of rage... With some wise advice, he fans it into flame, making a mountain out of a molehill. And what began as an issue between two people now suddenly becomes a crisis of empire-wide proportions. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, let it be written in the laws of the Medes and Persians and Medes, uh, which cannot be repealed, that the Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes, which means in her royal capacity. She was deposed, because you'll see in history later she does come back under her son's rule. And also let the king give her a royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Right. Like, what has he been drinking? I mean, that's going to really do it, don't you? Doesn't love breed in those kind of commands? Your wives just love to respond to that kind of... Anyway, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did what Memucan proposed. And, and here's an interesting thing in, in history. This will, there are things in this book that root this into history. Because some people say, oh, this was written way long after, etc. Well, they find all the time with archaeological digs that things that, are, that were said were really only maybe um, coming to light years later. And they find out, wow, what was written here really substantiates the fact that it was written at that time. And this is one of them. There were, he sent dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom. Um, what is really interesting, they had an incredible communication system, and Herodotus at one point um, basically says, in fact, I, I think I'll, I'll read it, because um, it's just short. He, he basically says, um, there's a major testimony to the historicity of the book of Esther, says this, um, uh, this commentator. The ancient historian Herodotus, who himself traveled throughout the western extent of the Persian Empire not long after the reign of Xerxes, describes the marvelous communication system that was set up. Nothing mortal travels so fast as these Persian messengers. The entire plan is a Persian invention, and this is the method of it. Along the whole line of road, there are men, they say, stationed with horses in a number equal to the number of days which the journey takes, allowing a man and a horse to each day, um, and these men will not be hindered from accomplishing at their best speed the distance which they have to go, either by snow or rain or heat or by the darkness of night. Does that sound familiar? Heard of the Pony Express? That's kind of what was going on there. This was a kind of a new communication system. And so he sends them to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. And here's Memucan's advice. Depose the king, queen, write a universal decree, 
Here it is. Basically institutionalized throughout India and North Africa, an abusive, fear-filled approach to marriage is this silly decree. Isn't that something? Let's just take what's in, in the sin of people's heart and let's kind of systemically put it into the law system. Here's how the world gets messed up. Stupid pride creates laws and sets up systems that mess up the world. I felt like I had to just comment because this whole Philando Castile thing is going on right now, right? And I can tell you, just making a comment, I put myself in a position where people can be all upset on either side. But what I find is interesting is that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. And no matter where the line was drawn on this decision, there would have been pain and outrage. And it matters not what side of the line you are on, the pride that keeps us from understanding one another, to, to honestly weep with the Castiles and blacks who have for hundreds of years been hurt by the system. And yet at the same time to recognize on the other side the difficulty of law and order in a society that has no respect for authority. Folks, you can be on whatever side and there's more than that. But we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. And it does no good to kind of put a line down and to stand on the side and start hurling the thems. When Jesus was incarnational and he said, I need to get into the shoes of other people and understand what's going on, there has to be some kind of sense of communication. There has to be an understanding and a willingness that, yes, there has been a group of people who for years have been in a system that has not been in their favor. And yet on the other side, since the 60s especially, there has been a disregard for authority. And I think of people in law and other places. And even though there may be abuse, because that abuse even started in the 60s with law, and order. And, and, and the reality is, that is a job that I go, who wants to do? And there isn't an easy answer. Our world's messed up because of sin. And I'm just going to in, in, in quickly just give you three areas. And I'm going to ask the band if they would kind of come, the worship team, if they'd come at this time. But I'm going to give you three statements. Our sinful choices mess up the course of this world. Our world is messed up due to the fact of sin in general, due to the fall and the entrance of sin. A week ago, Mary Singleton died out here. And uh, we had a funeral. And people, I had reporter after reporter asking me, why? Where's God? What was happening in that? And my, my response was the classic theological response of the fall of, uh, uh, of mankind and the entrance of sin and, and disasters and tragedies and all these kinds of things happen because God gives us free will and he doesn't just step in and he allows that free will to work itself. And I went through all this stuff and then I came back in and one of our um, ladies who's a receptionist, Sherry at the desk, said to me, what were you talking about? And she asked me and I said, um, I told her and, and then her response to me was, oh, that's interesting. She said, um, I remember uh, the very same kind of question being asked to Billy Graham. And I'm going, okay, this will be interesting. She said, I remember once that, that Billy Graham had that, that same question about tragedy. And he looked at the reporter and said, that's a good question. I have a whole list of questions I'm going to ask Jesus someday that I don't understand. I thought, that's, that's a good answer. <laughs> There's a mystery we don't even understand, but we know that sin is involved. Our sinful choices also mess up the lives of others. This king's pride caused the death of over a million men. The king's pride humiliated his wife and ended in, the de- her, her, in divorce. And the king's pride sent a stupid decree placing many women in abusive situations. 
Our choices hurt others, and our sinful choices mess up our own lives. Israel was in Babylon as a result of their own choice. They left their city, and their city was destroyed, and their temple was destroyed because of their own stupid pride. And yet, even with this world of sin and the mess we're in, the author Esther reminds us again and again with each page when we begin to wonder, where's God in this messed up world? He's here. Everywhere around us, he's watching us, he's at work, and even as big as the king or president or any world leader thinks they are, God is bigger still. 